You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Alex Murdoch's dramatic fall from grace and legal dynasty that lasted for a century in South Carolina. So how did things go so wrong? Many point to Paul Murdoch's drunken boat crash that left a teenage girl dead as the beginning of the end. I sentence you to prison for the rest of your natural life. It's the fall of the House of Murdoch. The five-generation dynasty ended today in a courtroom where the Murdochs once reigned supreme. 48 Hours National Correspondent Nikki Batiste. Well, I'd say this has been the epic fall from Grace Alec Murdoch and his family really ran this community for a long, long time. And seeing him in this courtroom in a jail jumpsuit this morning being sentenced to life in prison for murdering his wife and son, this will change this community and the reputation of this family forever. And this tragedy may have been the start of their fall. In 2019, Alex's drunken son, Paul, crashed a boat carrying five of his friends into a bridge. There's six of us and one is missing. 19-year-old Mallory Beach was killed. Paul was caught on security camera in a convenience store buying $50 worth of alcohol that night. He used his brother Buster's driver's license because he was underage. Surveillance video also shows Paul and his friends on a dock. He's unsteady on his feet. There's Mallory with her boyfriend, the last image of her alive. At the boat crash scene, police treat Paul Murdoch with kid gloves, a sign of the clout the Murdoch name carried in South Carolina's low country. Listen, but Mallory's boyfriend vents his fury at Paul. In the hospital after the crash, Paul showed no remorse, even reportedly flirting with the nurses. He had still not faced justice two years later when he was murdered by his father. In his testimony, Alex Murdoch tried to shift blame for the murders onto people angry at Paul over the crash. They hated Paul Murdoch and they had anger in their heart. Bill Nettles is the former U.S. attorney in South Carolina. That is a courthouse where his granddad and his dad and he had spoken to juries before as prosecutors. He probably had to believe that these are my people. And if I just go up there and look them in the eye and tell them I didn't do it, they will believe me. Mallory's parents were in court today to see Alex Murdoch sentenced. It's an outcome that we were uh, hoping for. The boat crash resulted in civil lawsuits that exposed Alex Murdoch's financial crimes. Nikki Batiste, who reports on the Murdoch case in a special 48-hour Saturday, says without the boating accident, none of this might have happened. There was a hearing scheduled on June 10th, three days after Maggie and Paul Murdoch were killed, where a lot of Alec Murdoch's financial records, his alleged financial crimes, would have come to light. His whole world was about to crumble. Murdoch's lawyers say they plan to appeal the verdict.
Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst, your go-to true crime, real crime podcast for your fix of expert analysis and insight, which importantly centres victims. In this episode, I'm diving into the sprawling macro timeline of the never-ending Murdoch Murders saga, a case where there were five dead bodies in six years. Gloria Sattlefield, Stephen Smith, Mallory Beach, and Maggie and Paul Murdoch. And yes, the clip at the top of the episode was about the boat crash. And I do believe that everything spiralled after the boat crash. But context and the wider context is everything. In the next few episodes, I want to wide-angle lens the case and the timeline. There are a number of key details and nuanced contexts that we have to understand because it's just like a spider's web. Some things are glinting in the sunlight and are obvious, but there are some layers that are still invisible, like with all coercive controllers and the tangled web they weave over time. And bear in mind that the micro-timeline was a massive piece of work for me, while so too is the macro-timeline. For crime analysts, this work is hugely time-intensive, and just to give you an idea, I started with one sheet of paper and mind-mapped what I thought were the key events in the macro timeline. And it's grown to 34 sheets of paper. And that's the edited version. But I promise you, I'm going to try and condense it even further and give you the broad beats. But there are some things that we should pay close attention to. Okay, so where I left off in the last episode, I told you that Mazelle, the place where Maggie and Paul were brutally killed execution style, was in Maggie's name. In other words, Maggie legally owned Mazelle. Now remember that friends had said previously that Maggie had no voice, that she would just tend to go along with things, but that when Maggie's checks bounced at charity luncheons and she became aware of Murdoch's drug use, the dynamic in the relationship shifted. You see, Maggie was no longer content to just roll along with things, nor was she happy to just sign things that Alec Murdoch put in front of her. He was in trouble particularly with the boat crash case looming. He was trying to get a $750,000 loan from Palmetto State Bank to supposedly do renovations on the house. But interestingly, Maggie wouldn't agree to a date for an appraisal, and legally, he couldn't do anything about it. That's just one example of what I'm talking about. Murdoch was millions of dollars in debt. He wasn't sleeping. He was under pressure. His father was terminally ill, and he would normally bail him out, and Maggie was not doing as she's told. Also, her will had been changed. I told you about that before. And the change was that if she died, everything would go to her husband. She apparently sought divorce advice and was questioning the financial situation according to the Daily Beast and People magazine. Now, I have heard some people close to this case say none of that's relevant. But for me, an expert in coercive control and power dynamics, it's absolutely relevant when thinking about what happened. It's important to understand in the context that Maggie was no longer just going along with things and that Murdoch's father was out of play and that questions were for the first time being asked of him at work. You see, there was another woman, a powerful and significant woman in Alec Murdoch's life who was challenging him for the first time and he didn't like it one bit. You have to remember that Murdoch was a man who was used to getting exactly what he wanted, when he wanted it. And his power and influence 
were slowly slipping away, and he knew it. Now cast your mind back to the June 10th interview, just days after Maggie and Paul were murdered, and Murdoch told Special Agent David Owen that he was just doing some stuff at work in the PMPED offices on June the 7th, but that he couldn't really remember what. And he could look it up if he wanted him to. Remember that? Well, one major thing he decided not to mention was that he was asked about some missing legal fees. And not just a small amount, but $792,000 worth of legal fees by the chief financial officer and chief operating officer of his law firm, Jeannie Seconder. Curiously, it had totally slipped Murdoch's mind that that day he was challenged about the missing money by Jeannie. She gave evidence about this, and you'll hear from her momentarily. Interestingly, she'd known Murdoch since she was 16 years old, since high school, and she'd worked with Murdoch for a number of years. And that tends to be the general flavour of things. Most people involved in the case attested to the fact that they'd known Murdoch for many years. Take a listen to Creighton Waters questioning Jeannie Seconder about her sending emails to Murdoch and Chris Wilson's office about the missing fees and then following up with him about them. Also, pay close attention to Murdoch's reactions to her. What was your concern? My concern was that he had stolen the fees and they were paid to him personally. All right. Um, did you, uh, in this conversation with Annette, did you instruct her to do anything? Did you send any email? I sent an email to Annette um, asking for Annette to get copies of the complete disbursement from Chris Wilson's office, along with a copy of what we call the general ledger printout, which would show the deposit and the checks, um, and the supporting document to the disbursement. Oftentimes, we'll just get a copy of the disbursement. So I asked for the full records like we would have in our office. And what did you tell Annette to do once you sent that email to her? Annette forwarded that email to Vicki Lyman at Chris Wilson's office. All right, and I'm going to show you what's been, uh, was part of Exhibit 312, and it's marked as 2374 at the bottom. And just kind of read that email going up. Is that, that the email that you sent to Annette? Yes. And is that the one that you were asking her to forward on? Yes. To request additional information from Chris Wilson's office to try to get to the bottom of it? Yes. All right. And if we go to the prior page, is that where Annette forwarded that document on to Vicki Lyman at Chris Wilson's office? This is. All right, and just real quick, what was the date on that uh, email when it was ultimately forwarded to Vicki Lyman at Chris Wilson's office? That email was sent on May 27th, but Vicki was out of the office on vacation, so Vicki replied to Annette on June 2nd upon her return. Okay, and what was the reply? And the reply was just clarifying what documents that they needed. And um, at that point, Vicki replies back to Annette, that she's not privy to that information, but she'll forward it on to Chris Wilson. To her boss, Chris Wilson. Yes. All right, so y'all, have y'all gotten an answer at this point? No. All right, so what's the next step? What happens after that? So we're waiting for a while, and on Monday, May 7th, I went to Alex's office searching for him after lunch. After you sent the, this email on June 2nd, did Alec ever reach out to you or talk to you about 
about the inquiries that you were making about where these fees were? Yes, he actually came in the next day. Um, first thing, Chris did not answer me, but Ellick came in the first thing and said, um, that money's in Chris's trust. Why do you need all this information? And I basically said, we just need it for our records. It's what we have in ours, and it's required for us to keep. He assured me that the money was over there and that he'd get the records or, and they'd get everything that we needed. And that was some point after June 2nd? I believe it was the next morning. All right. And did you seek him out or did he seek you out to say, hey, no, that money's there the whole time? He seeked me out. All right. And that's what he told you? Yes. All right. Uh, did um, around this time, did anybody else, uh, did, did you have any discussions with any of the other partners about what was going on with this? I did. I'd initially gone to Lee Cope because he was one of the, he's one of the, partners that does a lot of the managing and he happened to be the one that was in the office when this was going on that I could find and talk to and he also helped me come up with the plan of how we were going to handle it so Alec would not think Annette was questioning. Um, Mark Ball also knew some about it. So. All right. um. Did I uh was there any discussion about anyone contacting Chris Wilson? After we didn't get it, that, that came later. That came later? That came later. Okay. All right. All right. So Alec uh, comes to you and says, all that money's there. Uh, what's the next thing that happened that you did? So the next thing that happened was on Monday, May, on June 7th, I went looking for Alec. Let me slow you down. On Monday, June 7th? Yes. What year? 21. June 7th, 2021. What happened? went to look for Alec, and when I got upstairs, he was standing outside of his office leaning on a file cabinet, and he looked at me with a, a pretty dirty look, one I'd not seen before, and said, what do you need now? Um, clearly disgusted with me, which kind of raised my hackles, so I said, well, let's go in your office and talk about it. When we went in his office, I said, I told him, I said, I have reason to believe that you received the fairest money directly to you, and you need to prove to me that you did not. And um, he assured me again that the money was in there. I told him I still needed to see the ledgers or proof that it was. Again, he told me the money was in there, that we could get it any time. Said he was trying to leave it in there to decide what to do as far as structuring some more money or putting more money in Maggie's name. You you asked him for proof, is that correct? Yes. Proof that he didn't have that money. Yes. Did you were you able to complete that conversation on the morning of June seventh, twenty twenty one? It was actually the afternoon of June seventh. Afternoon. But no, we were not able to complete it. During the middle of our conversation, um, he took a phone call, and the call was saying that his father was in the hospital and that there was nothing more that could be done, and he was terminal. So at that point, you know, I've known Alec for, since I was 16 years old, known the family forever. It turned into a personal conversation about how's your dad doing, how's everything doing, you know, what's going on. and. I basically thought he was leaving to go to the hospital to attend to his father, so I left the office at that time, and we did not discuss the money anymore. You thought he was leaving to go? I thought he was going to go to see about his father. Um, he had gotten a phone call about his father June 7, 2021, correct? That's right. Did you have a conversation 
with Alec later on that day. We did. Around 4 o'clock, my phone rang, and I remember because I was surprised that he was still there. And Alec was asking me some information about his 401k balance. And why was he doing that? He was doing that because he stated he had to get some documents and financials together for a hearing regarding the boat wreck later that week. He needed his own financial information for a hearing for the boat case that week, correct? That's correct. Okay, let's just break some of that down. Murdoch told her that the money was there. When it wasn't, he expected her to just take his word for it. But she didn't. She chased Murdoch down on this, and he didn't like it one bit. On the afternoon of June 7th, she approached him and he said, what do you need now? And gave her a filthy look like he was disgusted with her, she said. I mean, look, she was just doing her job. Now, when men take that tone and that demeanour with women, the micro-expressions of aggression and disgust are evident, particularly powerful men, and we know it when we see it. And the purpose is to intimidate and close us down. In my opinion, he knew what he was doing. He was using his personal and professional power to try and silence her. But it didn't work. Now for me, what I learn here about Murdoch is that when things go his way, he's bright and breezy. But when he's under pressure, and it's someone that he thinks he can intimidate, it's an entirely different kettle of fish. Now for me, I saw a hint of this before and it was directed towards Detective Laura Rutland when she asked Murdoch a question in the June 7th police interview. I detected a microaggression, an undercurrent, a slight bristle of agitation when she asked a question of him. Now Jeannie here said that she needed proof that the money was not in Murdoch's account. She wanted to know that he didn't have the money and she needed to see the ledgers. In other words, she was saying that this wasn't going to go away. Now, he talked about putting money in Maggie's name. Now, that tells me that he felt that he could just use her and do things financially, i.e. move money around and put things in her name. So that's noteworthy to me. Then Murdoch got the call that his dad was in hospital and terminally ill. And at that point, Jeannie said it became a personal conversation. Jeannie knew him and the family, and the conversation about the money went away. In other words, what he learned was that he got a pass from tragedy. And that wasn't the first time. Now, Jeannie thought that Murdoch was leaving to see his father, which is the normal script for someone receiving this sort of horrific news. But that's not what happened. Murdoch stayed at work, and they spoke again at 4pm. Who does that? He told her that he wanted information for the hearing regarding the boat case that week. So the who does that part, well... This tells me that this was his priority. That's who does that. This is what was on his mind. So isn't it interesting that it just totally slipped his mind when he was being asked about it by SLED? And also, it seemed to have slipped his mind that all his financial records were due as the boat case was back in court on June the 10th. His father, who he'd previously relied on to help him out financially and in other ways, was now terminally ill and in hospital and effectively unable to be of use to Murdoch. And that was no good to him. Take a listen to this. Did you go home at the end of work that day? I did. Went back home and had a normal evening? Yes, until about 10.30. Tell me what happened at 10.30. Um, I got a call or started getting texts from friends asking if I'd heard if Maggie and Alec, I mean Maggie and Paul had been shot. 
Um, I didn't know anything about it. They were hearing things on scanners. So I've sent texts to a couple of the attorneys and did not hear back until probably 2 o'clock in the night. Mark emailed me back or texted me back that they, in fact, had been shot and killed. Was that shocking? It was very shocking. Was everybody scared? Very scary. You know, nobody knew what was going on, so very scary. Did the, you said this law firm was like a brotherhood, correct? That's correct. Did everyone rally to LXA? We did. There, nothing happened that week at work. Um, everybody spent time with Alec trying to support him, bringing family meals, attending the funerals, so nothing happened all week. After the murders happened, was anybody at all concerned about getting the proof for those missing fees after those murders happened at that point in time? We weren't because we were concerned about Alec. Um, he wasn't working a whole lot. He was um, erratic. We knew he was taking pills. Um, we were just worried about his sanity, so we weren't going to go in there and harass him about money when we were worried about his mental state and the fact that this, his family had been killed. Um, it just wasn't even on our mind at that point. Wouldn't be on your mind, would it? No. As a few weeks went on, um, did you ever receive any communication about those fees that kind of put the matter to bed at least a little bit? We did. Lee Cope, who is one of the partners, took over. Um, he, you know, he, we decided we were not going to press Alec. But Lee made some contact with Chris Wilson during that time, asking Chris for information. Um, and I believe after that, Alex searched me out again and said, hey, I've got that money. Um, but it wasn't until, I believe it was July 19th, I received an email that Chris had forwarded to Alec. Alec then forwarded the email to myself and Lee Cope. And in that email, it said, I am holding the fees for the Ferris case, and he named the amounts and said they are available any time that you should need them. So we're being told by outside counsel that the money is there. Did you trust what you were being told? Yes. When you got that email, did at least for the time being, that looked like the matter was put to bed? Yes. I mean, these are members of the bar who've taken a sworn oath that we're supposed to trust, and they're telling us the money's there. I'm still on Exhibit 312. I'm going to put this up on the screen. Do you recognize that? That is the email that I'm referring to. Right. And <clears throat> this email comes from who to who? Comes from Chris Wilson to Alec Murdoch. And then it gets sent to who? Myself and Lee Cope. From who? From Alec Murdoch. And can you read uh, to the jury 
that paragraph right there, what was uh, forwarded to you to sort of put this matter to bed. Alex, as discussed, I am confirming that I am holding in trust $600,000 in the Andrell Ferris case and $192,000 in the Denise Ferris case, which represent attorney fees. I will continue to hold these monies in trust until I am instructed by you and your firm regarding payment. Does that leave you to believe that those monies have been there all along? Yes, with some hesitation on my part because I just, it still seemed a little shaky to me. But I've decided that I would have to believe what was presented to me. Note that Jeannie said how scary it was when it happened. And remember conversely how Murdoch didn't seem to be scared at all that night when he called 911. Also noteworthy is that the firm rallied around him and the money issues went away. Then she was told by outside counsel the money was there. And Jeannie makes an excellent point that these lawyers have taken a sworn oath at the bar and you're supposed to trust them. For me, it just further underlines the point that Murdoch was in a position of trust and power. That's what makes all of this even more egregious. And this is just a fraction of it. And it all matters and it's relevant. Two women challenging Murdoch. Paul's continued run-ins with law enforcement after the boat crash and continually putting the spotlight on the Murdoch family and the family name, and more so Murdoch's financial accounts being requested for court on June the 10th. But the macro timeline doesn't start here. We have to go way back to understand the 1,000 steps it took for Murdoch to take the terrible life-ending decisions that he took on June the 7th. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. In 1920, Randolph Murdoch was the first elected solicitor, also known as a district attorney, for the state's 14th Judicial Circuit. In February 1983, Operation Jackpot shut down a network of smugglers, or we might call them organised criminals, bringing marijuana and hash into South Carolina through the lightly patrolled lowland inlets. That takedown happened in the Bahamas, 
where authorities seized 17 tonnes of marijuana. Seven people were charged with conspiracy to possess and distribute £34,000 of marijuana and conspiracy to import marijuana into the US, including William Phillips, a former attorney, Sarah Wyatt, Sandra Clark, Saxe Chaplin, Richard Harriet, and a Barrett Bowler of Allendale, and Bowler's father, who was also charged in connection with the case. Now, in the previous episode, I said Barrett Bowler, but locally, they would pronounce it Bowler, so I'm going to go with Bowler. He comes up multiple times, so that's why I've just laid a note down there. Now, a man called Franklin Branch was going to testify against both Bowlers. However, in April, just before he could, the Tallahassee Democrat reported that he walked into the path of an oncoming vehicle, in air quotes. Well, that's a very interesting phrase, and it piqued my interest. So I looked at the newspaper cut about it. Branch was a federal witness who allegedly walked into the path of a vehicle at 1.20am in the morning when he was making his way to a bar. The driver of that vehicle was a man called TJ Whitfield, who was questioned and released. And the trooper for the highway patrol, Millard Gilman, said in the same article that Branch had a high blood alcohol level at the time of death. Well, that doesn't sound suspicious at all, does it? And the consequences of this were significant. The charges against the bowlers were dropped following Branch's death. The four others, however, were convicted. Fast forward to 1987, Randolph Murdoch III is elected as solicitor for the South Carolina's 14th Judicial Circuit. In the late 1980s, Barrett Bowler and his wife, Janine, were arrested for drug possession. He was convicted of trafficking cocaine and possession of marijuana, while she is convicted of possession of marijuana. Appeals of the conviction were denied. However, in their research, Fitz News were unable to find any record of either Bowler going to prison for their convictions. In February 1997, Murdoch Holdings and Barrett Bowler purchased property together to the tune of $115,000. They went on to become business partners and became close. And they bought many properties together, oceanfront properties. In fact, they jointly owned at least nine properties that were strategically and ideally placed as lookout properties along the coastline. Interestingly, they kept these properties even in the housing boom, so they must have been important to them. There were also a number of LLCs set up too, some related to some bizarre jellyfish companies. And yes, you heard that right. So I'm pondering the question, was Murdoch diversifying his portfolio into the delicacy of jellyfish? Or was this a front for drug trafficking? And by the way, I'm calling it drug trafficking and not smuggling or gentlemen smugglers. There's no such thing. That's BS used to protect criminals. This sounds like organised crime to me, plain and simple. And as always, I say follow the timeline and follow the money. In 2000, Bowler purchases Mazelle for 257000 And let's not forget that Mazelle had an airplane strip. Oh, and interestingly, Bowler bought a plane. Now that might come in handy for drug trafficking. And in December 2003, Bowler and Murdoch purchase another property for $115,000. In July 2004, Bowler and Murdoch purchase another property for $150,000. 
In 2005, Randolph Murdoch III stepped down as solicitor after 20 years, ending the family's 87-year tenure in the role. On the 15th of August 2005, Maggie's will was signed. I talked about this and the fact that originally she listed her sister Marion Proctor as the person who would handle her estate, and this was then crossed out, and Randolph Murdoch III, Murdoch's father, was written in her place. But in the event of Maggie's death, everything would go to Alec. And if Maggie and Alec both died, all of Maggie's property would go to her sons. But this is yet another anomaly. The fact that there was handwriting on Maggie's will invalidated it. Now, as a family of lawyers, the Murdochs would well have known this. So Maggie's money and estate would have gone to Alec Murdoch, but he was arrested and charged with Maggie and Paul's murders. And weirdly, instead of Maggie's estate going to marry and her sister, as was Maggie's wish, John Marvin Murdoch, Alec Murdoch's brother, became her personal representative. And Randy Murdoch, Alec Murdoch's other brother, became Paul's personal representative. Now, Paul had no will, but in the event of his death, his estate would have gone to his mother and or father. But again, his father was arrested and charged for his murder. So, one way or the other, the Murdoch family were in control. In late September 2005, Murdoch began stealing money from his law firm and clients to the tune of $8.4 million. His law firm, PMPED, would later sue him in October 2021 to recover funds that they allege he stole from clients for his own personal use. The firm alleged Murdoch developed a systematic scheme in which he diverted funds owed to the firm and to clients to a fictitious entity for many years. Now, one of the things that I'll get into is that it's clear from the evidence that he didn't do this alone. Now, this is where I highly recommend you listen to the Murdoch Murders podcast, which has now been renamed True Sunlight, Mandy Matney's podcast about the case. She's already dropped 93 episodes, so do go and have a listen. She's covered the case right from the beginning, enterprising, pioneering, challenging and difficult reporting. But Mandy's been there at every beat, so please take a listen and come back to me and listen to the analysis. So continuing on the macro timeline, in 2006, Murdoch represents Barrett Bowler in a breach of contract suit. Now, I can't tell you for sure, but I would imagine Barrett Bowler's previous drug-slash-organised crime case and how he managed to avoid a hefty jail sentence may well have come up in conversation at some point. I don't think that's too much of a stretch to think that that may well have happened. So I think that's important to lay a marker down here particularly when it's clear that Murdoch is struggling to control the narrative or fix the jury in the boat case and the financial pressures were coming on top, and I'm going to detail most of them. Judge Carmen Mullen was the judge on the Mallory Beach case, and she went to law school with both Murdoch and Corey Fleming, and I'm going to come back to her. What's evident to me is that wealth, privilege, status and power were the most important thing to Murdoch, Remember how angry he was when the 911 caller asked if it was a mobile home? Remember Murdoch didn't leave the law firm on June the 7th to see his father when he heard he'd been taken ill and it was terminal. So this behaviour is leakage and it tells me what Murdoch values, along with him having credentials and the blues and twos that he had for his car, despite not being law enforcement. This all paints a picture. It holds up a mirror to who he is. In 2006, Duffy Stone is elected solicitor with Murdoch's support. 
and some money. And yes, that's the same Duffy Stone who turned up at the crime scene at Moselle, who refused to acknowledge that there was a direct conflict given his relationship with the Murdochs, and it's the same Duffy Stone who would recuse himself on August the 11th after Sled's interview slash interrogation of Alec Murdoch. And yes, that's the same Duffy Stone who gave Murdoch his credentials and the blues and twos for his car. In 2010, Murdoch represents Curtis Eddie Smith in a personal injury lawsuit for a 2007 workplace accident. You'll hear his name come up again later, relating to multiple checks being made, but also to the September 4th shooting, when Murdoch yet again called 911. Around July 2011, until at least October 2021, Murdoch conspired with his banker, Russell Lafitte, from Palmetto State Bank, to commit wire fraud and bank fraud. Now that's the same Russell Lafitte who was recently found guilty of six federal counts of conspiracy with Murdoch to steal millions of dollars from clients. He now faces up to 180 years in prison and up to $6 million in fines. Now I'm not going to detail every charge and count here because there are many, but it's recorded that in December 2010, Murdoch makes his first alleged embezzlement. $325,000 from a settlement payment was used to purchase a money order payable to a Murdoch family member. In April 2013, Murdoch purchases Mazelle from Barrett Bowler for $5. The property is valued at $730,000. In October, the state alleged that Murdoch started buying and selling oxycodone. In 2014, Murdoch makes a $50,684 checkout to Palmetto State Bank from PMPED's client trust account. The settlement money was from the estate of Donna Badger, who was killed in a car accident. In 2015, a bank account at Bank of America is opened by an R. Alexander Murdoch, doing business as Forge. Now, bear in mind that a federal grand jury has returned a 22-count indictment against Murdoch for conspiracy to commit wire fraud, bank fraud and money laundering, and the indictment alleges that Murdoch engaged in three different schemes to obtain money and property from his personal injury clients. The third scheme, the indictment alleges, was that in September 2015, Murdoch created a bank account in the name of Forge, presenting as a legitimate corporation for structuring insurance settlements. Murdoch was the owner of and the only authorised signer on this fake Forge account. The indictment alleges that from or around May 2017 through at least to July 2021, Murdoch funnelled stolen personal injury settlements through the fake Forge account. Murdoch is charged with 14 counts of money laundering for using the transactions in the fake Forge account to conceal the proceeds of his fraud. Now, I hope you're still with me because there is a lot of information about the financial fraud and his corruption. And like I said, I'm not going to go into absolutely every transaction and I'm going to carry on with the macro timeline because on July the 8th, 19-year-old nursing student Stephen Smith is found dead in the middle of Sandy Rum Road. At the time, the coroner ruled the death a shooting, which later became a hit and run, though evidence of either was never found. Interestingly, Randy Murdoch, Murdoch's brother, called Joel, Stephen's dad, early the next morning and offered to investigate the accident for free. He was the second call Stephen's father received that morning, the first after the coroner. Now, I have many questions about this case, 
Like, how did he know so quickly that Stephen was dead, and why did he insert himself into this? Stephen's body was removed from the scene at 9.30am, and Randy and Murdoch were on the scene by 11.30am the same day. Like I said, there are many questions, and I'm not going to cover them all here. It's worthy of a separate episode, but it is an open investigation now. Thank goodness. And Stephen's mother, Sandy, has been an incredible advocate for her son. So you'll hear more about Stephen soon. In December, Mazel is transferred to Maggie for $5. And on the 22nd of April, 2017, Paul is charged with littering by a Department of Natural Resources officer at McCallie's Creek Sandbar. In May, Murdoch begins funneling money from personal injury settlement cases from his forge account to his personal bank account. On the 25th of May, Paul fails to appear in court for his littering charge. A bench warrant is issued. On the 29th of May, Paul, at 17 years of age, is charged with misdemeanor possession of alcohol. A bench warrant for failure to comply is removed after the $510 littering fine was paid. On the 29th of June, acting as Paul's attorney, Murdoch, his father, and Corey Fleming file for a jury trial for Paul's alcohol possession charges. This trial is delayed five times. This is really curious to me because it shows a repeat pattern of reckless behaviour and the intervention by his father and Corey Fleming. Accountability is really key and is all I see is that his reckless behaviour repeats and there's no sanction, there's no accountability. And what the hell is his father doing representing him? That's clearly a conflict and it doesn't end there. On the 29th of September, Paul is arrested for a seatbelt violation. And on the 18th of December, Paul is fined $25 in Eastill Magistrate Court for that seatbelt violation. And on the 2nd of February 2018, Murdoch housekeeper Gloria Sattlefield falls going up brick steps at the main house of the Moselle property. On the 26th of February, Gloria dies of natural causes, in inverted commas, at Trident Medical Centre in North Charleston, South Carolina, after three weeks in the hospital with three broken ribs and a hematoma. At the funeral, Murdoch tells Gloria's son to hire Corey Fleming to sue him, Alec, since she fell at his property. He said that he had accidental death insurance, so his insurance company would pay out. Murdoch's friend, Corey Fleming, would even represent the boys and handled the lawsuit for free. Fleming's services would later be offered pro bono to Connor Cook following Mallory Beecher's death. Another lawsuit to be handled by Murdoch's best mate. A lawsuit against him. You really can't make this up. There's a conflict here and it stinks to high heaven. But this again just illustrates to me the power and control that Murdoch had in this area. He's everywhere. Well, he and his people, his tentacles, the web that he weaves. And I still have so many questions about Gloria's death. I didn't just accept the narrative that she had tripped up the steps because of the dogs. I did wonder, given that they were working dogs, were they actually even allowed down at the house? I don't know. But it just sounded very strange to me. And there are certainly questions to be asked. And I'm not going to go into all the detail in this episode, but Gloria's case is also worth covering in a separate episode. On the 4th of March, Paul was arrested for driving with an expired licence. In May, Paul had his court date for his expired driver's licence. And for the 2017 misdemeanour charges, Paul is sentenced to attend an alcohol diversion programme. 
Murdoch and another attorney represented him. This is a trial that was scheduled five times ahead of the sentencing date, but his charges were later dismissed upon completion of the programme, and Paul's charges for possession of alcohol were dismissed. Now this again is very curious to me. The alcohol issues just keep showing up, and the reckless behaviour and the lack of accountability. And I just keep thinking back to those moments where Murdoch's talking about how proud he was of Paul. I didn't buy it then, and I don't buy it now. I also mentioned before that I thought Murdoch and Barrett Bowler were close. Well, Murdoch is granted power of attorney by Barrett Bowler. And in September, Barrett Bowler dies of cancer. On the 4th of December, Chad Westendorf, a banker for Palmetto State Bank, acted as attorney for Gloria Satterfield's sons, while he received an insurance settlement cheque for $505,000. And on the 19th of December, Murdoch settles a wrongful death suit with Gloria's estate. On the 23rd of February, the boat crash happens, resulting in Mallory Beach's horrific death. And this is just over one year after Gloria's horrific death. It wasn't until the 3rd of March that Mallory's body was found. Mallory Beach's parents file a wrongful death suit that names several parties, including Alec Murdoch, who owned the boat Paul was driving, and Buster Murdoch, whose ID was used to purchase alcohol illegally. The Beach family also names Parker's 55, the convenience store Paul allegedly bought alcohol from in their lawsuit. On the 7th of March, Mallory Beach's funeral is held. Murdoch thought the insurance company were going to cover the boat crash, but that's not what happened. The policy that he had related to the commercial hunting lodge Moselle. So why should they cover Murdoch's drunk son, who's driving a boat, nowhere near Moselle? Mark Tinsley is a lawyer acting on behalf of the Beach family, and he thought the case would be settled. Take a listen to Mark Tinsley and what he had to say about Murdoch and his behaviour. Okay. And uh, did you make it clear to uh, Alex's attorneys that uh, you were seeking a personal recovery that he would have to pay as opposed to just accessing what insurance co coverage was available? Always. And that was consistent all the way through, is that all, correct? All the way through. Were you making substantial demands to the defense that Alec pay a uh, substantial recovery, personally? I think by, by most standards, and I don't want to seem crass when I say this, but the Beach family stood on the causeway for eight days while their daughter's body was in the water. Um, I don't know that there's any amount of money that would somebody would willingly take to go through what they've gone through. Um, but, but if you were asking a lawyer who does civil work, uh, was I making a substantial demand in terms of a settlement? I think that most people would say yes. In your assessment, did that come as a bit of a, or did the defense express to you surprise uh, that you were seeking a personal recovery from Ally rather than just simply trying to access what insurance coverage he had? Um, yeah, some, some, some people did. Um, John Tiller was primarily handling the case for Alec, and I didn't get that from John, but, but I got it from a lot of people. Um, in August of 2019, uh, is there a particular conference that those uh, in your line of work go to? Uh, it used to be called the Trial Lawyers Conference, um, but yeah, it, it's in Hilton Head, and, and I went in 2019 of August. 
Did you see the defendant there? I did. And did you have a conversation with him about the boat case? I did. All right. Can you relate that conversation to the court, please? Yeah. Um, I think, I'm not 100% certain that it was a fundraiser, either for Mr. Harpootlian or it was a fundraiser for Lindsey Graham. Uh, as you come into the hotel, there's a, there's a gathering area. It's in the evening before um, everyone goes to dinner or it's immediately after. I'm not 100% certain. Um, but the room's full of lawyers and Alex sees me and he comes across and he gets up close in my face and says, hey, Bo, what's this I'm hearing about what you're saying? I thought we were friends. And I replied, Alec, we are friends. Uh, if you don't think I can burn your house down and that I'm, that, that I'm not doing everything and I'm not going to do everything you're wrong, you need to settle this case. Okay. And so what was the point of that conversation? What, what was, uh, if you can explain to the court what y'all were talking about, what, what, is, what is Alec upset to as you understood it? That he was going to have to pay was, was what he was hearing. That's what it was. That's what the, the point of it was. We're friends. I took it as he tried to intimidate me. He didn't intimidate me uh, and, and sort of bully me into backing off. Um, was there a uh, mediation in September of 2019? There was. No, yeah. 20. September of 20. 20. Um, before we get there, we move into uh, early March of 2020, and we probably all know the answer to this, but what happened in March of 2020 that kind of changed the world? COVID, the court shut down. And did that have an effect on slowing down things in the court systems? It, it, it definitely stopped the court system. Um, we continued to take some uh, depositions, pr primarily law enforcement. It was at the scene um, early on, and then ultimately when everything finally shut down, I'm not sure if it's, if it's May or April, when then you know, we were sort of confined to our offices. Did you, uh, during the course of COVID, uh, take the opportunity to sort of present the case to a mock jury to get an, an idea of how that jury might respond? I did. Right. And were the results very favorable for your client and not favorable for Alec? They were. Okay. Did you ultimately communicate that fact to the defense? I did. <clears throat> Had you come into possession of some social media videos that uh, you believe would be very uh, advantageous to proving your case and achieving a large recovery? I did. Uh, and I shared those with John Tiller. So what's interesting to me is that Murdoch targeted him and tried to intimidate him and bully him into backing off. And let's not forget about COVID in the timeline either, where everything was closed down, which limited most people's earning capacity. Now, for Murdoch, this was disastrous at a time when this boat crash case was looming and he needed money because the insurance company were not going to cover it, so he was personally on the line. And there were the social media videos that Mark Tinsley said that would help prove his case. OK, so all of that's important because then Murdoch pleaded poverty and in October 2020, Mark Tinsley filed the motion to establish what bank accounts Murdoch had because he was claiming that he had no money. Take a listen to this. So there, there are a couple of things going on here. Um, in October of um, 20, I filed a motion to compel. Um, Alex said he was broke. 
he doesn't have any money. He may be able to cobble together some amount of money, but he's broke. And, and I didn't believe it. So I filed a motion to compel. And about a week after I'd filed that motion to compel, uh, Danny Henderson, who again was Alex's personal lawyer, came to my partner, uh, said he couldn't believe that we were going after Alec personally. Um, it was a line in the sand that I'd crossed, a number of things like that. So that's what this conversation is about. Um, and, you know, by, by November, this is, I think, November of 2020, um, the Beach family, they want accountability. They, they, they want a pound of flesh, and whatever that's going to be, it's only going to be through a jury. Uh, or through a substantial settlement. All right, well, let me back up and we'll get to the motion to compel in a second. You mentioned that you had uh, been told by the defense essentially that Alec had no money, correct? He's broke. Right. Did they say he could cobble together a certain amount? Thought he could cobble together a million dollars. A million dollars. And did you believe that that was accurate? It couldn't have been. All right, and why did you not believe that that was accurate? Well, uh, when you practice law, uh, not necessarily with, uh, it, it meaning in the same case, but, but when you go to a roster meeting, uh, if there were 50 cases on the roster in Hampton, Ellick may have had 50 or 60 of those percent of those cases. And so they're actively being settled. Uh, I know that he's actively making money and you just can't possibly be broke uh, if you're making money, not the way he was making money. And then beyond that, I'm, I mean, my clients have known Ellick uh, and his family forever, and so their perspective is that there's generational wealth as well. Did you, uh, was $1 million going to be enough money from your client's perspective to settle this case? It, it, it wasn't enough from, from my perspective. Okay. I can explain that if you want. Yes, please. Yeah. So one of the things that I didn't appreciate that I came to appreciate by this point in time was, is that, it, and it may not make a whole lot of sense, but if I, if I told a lawyer who, do, who does what I do that I'd settled the case, uh, there's a lot of speculation because I've had cases with the firm and members of the firm are my friends, uh, that somehow there's a fix on. I think for a long time, Ellick thought there was a fix on, that, that he was just a placeholder, a venue defendant. And, and so if I, if I told you I've settled the case, and then the next question would be, what did, you, what did you settle it for? I said, well, I took the insurance company. If you knew what I know uh, and what plaintiff's lawyers know, you'd think, well, there was a fix. The only reason I would take it is because it was a fix. I didn't see a substantial difference between that number and a million dollars. And so I thought that if you told 10 lawyers who were knowledgeable about these kinds of matters. I took a million dollars from Ellick, who from everyone's perspective has lots of money, is making piles of money. They would think that it was a fix. So, so before we even get to what's a fair amount, what, what should you take? You know, I, the analogy I use with my clients is, it's kind of like that show deal or no deal. You may have the million dollars suitcase or you may have a zero suitcase. And, but it's not until there's a significant enough offer that you could do worse um, that you should settle a case, any case. And, and, that's, and so at a million dollars, it just wasn't, there wasn't any risk to them 
that would prompt me to recommend them to take it. Um, did you uh, make any sort of formal or informal offer to them that involved the real property as well as any sort of payment plan? When, when I was told that Ellick was broke, I offered him a payment plan. Sometimes when you settle cases, medical malpractice cases, for instance, with the JUA, they will make payments. Uh, I offered to, for him to sign over Moselle and the beach house, open his books to see that he was broke, and, and then work out a payment plan on the balance. So when you say, okay, you say he's broke, I don't believe that. Show me the books to prove that. What was your response from, the, uh, from Alex's defense? Well, it was sort of stonewalling uh, to begin with. I mean, ultimately, I got a formal response, which was an objection that prompted the motion to compel in October of 2020. Now, it's interesting to hear here that Danny Henderson went into the Beach family lawyer indignant that he was going after Murdoch personally. Seriously, do these people have no shame? That's so gross and so shameful. So Mark Tinsley said that it was clear that Murdoch was making money and that there was generational wealth and the Beach family wanted accountability from a jury or a substantial settlement and that he was worried that there might be a fix. And he had good reason to be concerned about a fix. And that's why he wasn't prepared to just take the one million that was offered by Alec Murdoch. He wanted more. And the more, as I said, was about accountability. And Mark Tinsley said that he offered a payment plan, but Alec Murdoch didn't take it. What's also interesting to me here is that Mark Tinsley was not playing by Murdoch's rules, and Murdoch understood that he couldn't stop him and he couldn't slow him down. This is what Mark Tinsley was requesting via the court. List all checking and or savings accounts, including credit union accounts, certificates of deposit, 401k accounts, SEP. Uh, accounts, IRA maintained by you, IRAs maintained by you individually and or jointly with any others or any other accounts over which you had signature authority in any capacity regardless of whether or not the account or accounts have been closed from February 2019 to present. Right. And ultimately, what was the uh, Alex defense's response to that, generally? You don't have to read that, but just tell me. It, it was overly broad, unduly burdensome, and irrelevant. Okay. And so ultimately, you filed a motion to compel, is that correct? That's correct. And the idea was, if you say you're broke, show me the books, and, to, and they had refused to with the response to this interrogatory, as well as others, is that correct? Correct. He wanted his accounts, and the court was supporting him. That's huge. And full respect to Mark Tinsley, he battled cancer and survived, and he wasn't backing down, even though Murdoch was pulling out all the stops. And that's not all. He was already making moves to ensure that Murdoch didn't try and interfere with or fix the trial, given his previous history. Take a listen to this. And so this conversation is, for the first time I've said, that I'm going to leave the case in Hampton. Um, but if I, if I think that Alec has fixed the jury, that he's done anything to affect the, the outcome of the trial, that I'm going to sue Paul and Maggie the next day in Beaufort. And was that communicated to the defense? Absolutely. Wow. 
It's just so clear to me that Mark Tinsley was closing down Murdoch's sphere of influence and power and control. If necessary, he said he would sue Maggie and Paul. Mark Tinsley gauged it right. Remember Jeannie Seconder said that Murdoch was considering what money etc he was going to put in Maggie's name? Well, Mark Tinsley accurately predicted he would do this. That's really important to understand in the macro timeline. And Mark Tinsley also had a very interesting profile of Murdoch that I want you to hear. Yeah, I think he was particularly good at reading people and and knowing what made people tick. And Mark Tinsley was accurate. He was on the money and determined to hold Murdoch's feet to the fire. And things were becoming very clear for Murdoch. Everything was on the line for him. Everything that mattered. The worst thing that can happen to a coercive controller and or psychopath is to expose them. They take drastic measures, scorch the earth measures to regain control. And because he was so good at reading things and people, he knew what was at stake here and that Mark Tinsley and Jeannie Seconder at PMPED were not going to just go away. And that's not all, but you'll have to wait to the next episode. Until next time, be curious ask questions, and always trust your instincts. Here's my final thought and ask before the episode wraps. I really appreciate you listening to Crime Analyst, and if you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to me. It really helps others find me and my work, and it helps with the ratings too. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Rowbottom at Syndicate. And music by Kilrude.